Talk features thought leadership interviews with bank and credit union executives. If you are the CEO or would like to be an executive one day, this is the podcast for you. Learn something new in each episode to improve the performance at your financial institution and go to banktalkpodcast.com for more information. And now, here's our host, Charlie Kelly. Hi, this is Charlie Kelly. Welcome to Bank Talk. I'm your host and partner at Remedy Consulting. And today we're talking fintechs with Kia Hazlitt of Bank Director. Uh, fintechs are a threat to any community bank or credit union. But what we're trying to discuss today is just what does that threat mean to you? Is there anything you can do about it as a CEO? Anything useful that you can pull from the way that the fintechs are approaching deposit accounts? So let's get started. Uh, today we have uh, Kia Hazlitt, Managing Editor of uh, Bank Director. Uh, welcome, Kia. Hi, Charlie. Thank you so much for having me. So, Kia, today we're going to talk fintechs, and I, I thought I would set the conversation up a bit. Uh, so, for those of you who are new to the show, let me first define the term fintech. Fintech is short for financial technology provider. It, you know, in a broader definition, I guess that could be any technology firm that provides services for the financial services industry. And in that broad definition, even your core provider could be considered a fintech. For the purposes today, though, when we talk about fintech, we're going to concentrate to just kind of narrow that definition to those fintech firms that want to provide banking type services to consumers. The majority of these have not traditionally held bank charters. And so these firms are not held to the you know same regulatory standard as banks. And I think of Stripe, Acorn, maybe Varo, SoFi, right? And there's a host of other names that are out there that are you know startups over the last, let's say, eight to 10 years that are kind of going after this bank to the consumer type of uh, type of an industry. So anyhow, I asked uh, Kia to join us today just to think through the difference between how a fintech values a deposit account and how community bankers have you know traditionally thought about that same deposit account. Kia, you recently published an article on on Varo and Bank Director. Tell our our listeners briefly about Bank Director. Bank Director is an information resource for banks specifically the high level board and executives. We offer board training and education, conferences like Acquire, Be Acquired, and of course, our editorial content, which is available on the web or in our quarterly magazine. And I'm a member of the editorial team there. And you and I kind of got together because I read this really interesting article you had done on Viral. You know, I guess for those that don't closely follow that fintech space, if you don't mind, just give us a couple of minutes on Viral and what you learned. Viral is a mission-driven, digital-only bank. They're targeted at retail customers. I focused on them for my article because they're actually the first financial technology company in the United States to be approved for a national bank charter. So they're a fintech that's successfully become a bank. Varo has consumer-friendly features on their checking accounts, like no minimum balance or monthly maintenance fees. And they're offering some kind of more innovative products or features like getting your direct deposit two days early or a substitute slash overdraft light product that helps customers 
avoid overdrafting. In my uh, conversations with the company, they really emphasize that they want to help people save money. They do that with a high yield savings account, a couple of automatic tools that incentivize savings. And then they are trying to get customers to use their debit card and they reward debit card usage. I think what some of these fintechs have that maybe banks aren't thinking about is often they see a function that's gone on for a long time like let's just talk you know overdraft protection right they the banks have always thought of that as a penalty for somebody you know borrowing money when they didn't have the option in my opinion i think that where some of these fintechs come around and have a different view of it is that they think of maybe that as a benefit they let their customers know that there's the possibility that you may overdraft and here are the tools we have to either avoid it or give you that quote unquote loan that you'll need because you had to overdraft am i understating overstating that I think they're thinking about different services that banks provide differently. I do think that for a while, banks made an overdraft a real penalty, a punishment. They made it really, really expensive. Put bluntly, I think that makes customers hate banks, whether or not the overdraft fee is, is fair. Borrow, and I know some other, some very you know consumer-friendly banks like Huntington, change their orientation to the overdraft, in which they have tried to both make it easier to avoid the overdraft by either having a grace period or like what Borrow does, which is that they spot the money to you for a very low fee, maybe 1%, maybe even less than that, depending on how much you need. And then it's just paid back with your direct deposit. They really use that direct deposit technology to help their customers regulate some of their spending, especially and smooth over when they might go into a negative balance. You know, as we're talking about deposits, I, I wanted to, you know, kind of make that point because I think that there are other portions of banking that maybe with a different view and a different look at it. Right, you would value them differently, and that's kind of you know really the the crux of the of the podcast today. So, okay, so you did a bit of research, which I think will really resonate with our users. Help us frame the size of a Varo, and and I, I don't, we're not going to really concentrate on this whole podcast on Varo, but I guess my point would be help us frame the size of an operation like this. Is that you know whether you call it number of accounts, account balances, anything you feel is relevant there. Varo is the first bank to obtain or the first fintech to obtain its national bank charter, which means it now files call reports. They've filed two. The call report at the end of 2020 shows that they have 650,000 accounts currently at their own bank. That number is a little in flux and has a high likelihood of increasing for reasons we'll talk about later. The call report also shows that they have $415 million in deposits, which comes out to an average balance of $640. That's not super surprising given their retail focus and mission to help save money. I don't have much information about the demographics of Varo's consumer base, but something that your listeners might want to think about is that the online delivery channel might resonate with a certain type of consumer that's very comfortable with a delivery channel and doesn't feel a lot of need to go to a physical location. Varo also offers some of the features that I've talked about that indicate that might speak to the appeal of its customers and their financial situation. So first of all, two things stand out from what you just said. The first one is, if the number is 600 plus thousand accounts, you know, I think any community bank would love to have 600,000 plus accounts. Secondly, the, the dollar value might be less than a tenth of what I would think of as a normal deposit account. So very high volume, low balance, at least to start. Is that how you interpreted what you saw there? Yeah, that's without knowing, I you know, without looking at every single bank that's the, this size or has this many accounts, that is my takeaway. Okay, Kia, 
we kind of talked about this this concept of low balance, sort of a high number of accounts, low balances. Are there other banks out there, other uh, fintechs specifically, that have a similar model, are using a similar model to kind of gain uh, customers? Yeah, there are a bunch, actually. Probably the biggest and most well-known is a digital bank called Chime that also has a large retail focus and the digital delivery channel. There's also several fintechs that are trying to do something that Varo has done, which is that apply for or acquire a bank charter. Some of the Companies include Lending Club, which acquired a charter through its purchase of Radius, and SoFi, which is taking the quote-unquote Vero way and just applying for the charter. These are a little different than Chime and Vero because they start with that loan relationship and are building it out from there. SoFi has probably one of the largest suite of products. It offers mortgages in addition to student lending and student loan refinancing. They offer investment accounts and they offer a cash management account, which is like a bank account and has to be administered through a partner bank. So we spoke a little bit about the charter and basically the fact that a call report is required once you get the charter. I think when you did your research for this article, you found something interesting, at least in my opinion, is just a little bit of detail around that call report. You walked us through some of that already, but can you just tell me a little bit about this concept of what are these fintechs doing before they have the charter? How are they able to manage accounts prior to the charter? Can you just give us a couple minutes on that marketing relationship or... Yeah. So Vero is in the process of actually exiting this type of relationship. They call it a marketing agreement, which is where they work with a bank partner or a sponsor bank to administer these bank accounts, but the deposits themselves are kept at the bank. On the bank side, uh, an institution that outsources its charter technology is called bank, you know, banking as a service or BAAS, BAS. Some community banks do this. They basically provide access to the financial pipes and they service the accounts and provide the debit cards associated with the accounts, which Vero markets. This can be really limiting for fintechs because oftentimes a bank will only want to provide one service. So they might want to provide checking and savings accounts, but not loans. And so the fintech would have to either find a different bank partner and stitch the two products together to offer them to as a product suite, or they have to get um, state bank like charters or lending licenses in different states and then manage the compliance and regulatory expectations of those individual areas. I'm going to try to put that in layman's terms, or at least the way I think about it. Prior to a bank charter, they can use this banking as a service type of an operation. And I would I would probably put that in my own words by saying that relationship is me renting space at a bank that has a charter. For, for lack of a better term, they're what I consider my accounts, but they're really not my accounts. I've opened them, but I've opened them on this bank as a service. And, and therefore, that's the reason I may not have nearly as much access to them. Was that a fair statement? Did I frame that okay? Yeah. Vara has told me that the accounts that are kept at its partner bank, which is which they're in the process of migrating to its own bank. They don't have access to the funds and they don't have access to the data on those purchases or about their customers. Okay, so if we could jump back quickly to the call report, suffice it to say, I would think that that call report would not show the accounts. Let me, uh, if I can use this as a use case. This is a, a new bank that at one point used banking as a service until yeah. they migrate the accounts over into their own balance sheet and their own accounts, 
that call report that you were looking at probably does not show either the breadth of how big they are because the, all the accounts have moved over, nor the breadth of the assets. Is that fair or is that what you saw? That's my impression. Varo's first call report showed only 200 <laughs> accounts. This <laughs> second call report shows 650,000. But we know that based on my research with the company, there is a date in October. It seemed pretty significant that if your account was open post that date in October, it was kept at the bank. Prior to that, it was actually kept at the partner bank. And so my sense is, and the company wouldn't confirm this, that they have not fully migrated the account. Some advisors um, or you know, fintech consultants think Varo has up to 2 million accounts. And we'll just have to wait to see each quarter if those accounts grow at kind of a rate that wouldn't make sense for just normal quarterly customer growth, but would indicate that they're moving them over. That migration expand that number from 650 well above that. Those 650 are, are deposit accounts or all accounts? And by that, I mean, usually when you're counting accounts, you may count a loan account. Are those deposit accounts? Yeah, the call report line item is actually accounts with less than $250,000 in deposits. That $250,000 is, of course, the FDIC limit for insurance. And above that, your deposits aren't insured. So that number literally corresponds to insured deposits. It doesn't necessarily mean savings or checking. It does mean that these are just what we would probably consider to be consumer retail accounts. Oh, and they're not retirement accounts. That's another line item in the call report. Okay, so they are... Truly a deposit savings type of income, not not a loan. For now, yes, for now. So now I want to spin this just a little bit. Because these are high volume, low deposit value, clearly each of these FIs or each of these fintechs spend quite a bit of time thinking about the way to value that account. And what I thought we could spend a little bit time around is you you made a pretty interesting observation in your article. So this is, uh, I'll quote it to some degree, but, you know, Varo, at least in the way I read your the piece of your article is paying interest on some of their deposit accounts and at the same time taking a loss of 470,000 in the quarter on that interest but they made 14.4 mm-hmm. million in debit interchange over that time so that's a, that's a fascinating dynamic can you expand on that a little bit First off, when you talk about the high rate of savings, you're referring to their savings account, which pays a little bit more than the industry average, but they incentivize placing up to $10,000 in the account. And then you have to use your debit card five times a month, and then you'll get more than 2% interest. And that is an industry high number right now. But in the scheme of things, is it that much money, especially if you're capping um, a savings account. (laughs) But you make the interesting point, or you point out that um, they are making money on debit interchange. With these low balance accounts, we assume, you know, that these customers are using that debit card to buy groceries and, and gas and pay for their lives. And I think that in the industry, because debit interchange is so pervasive and all banks have it, whether or not they're subject to the Durban Amendment, it can feel like air. It can just feel like something everyone has. But Varo really shows the power of 44 cents a swipe every time you swipe a debit card. And they are trying to 
incentivize their consumers to use their debit card and make it the go-to card in their wallet. So even though the accounts are low and maybe they're paying slightly more on interest, they are becoming a a habit for their consumer. They're becoming the go-to card in the wallet. The other thing too is that borrow is an online bank and they're going to have different legacy costs because they don't have branches. So their expense structure looks really different. And in that regard, they're really similar to other online banks that offer that can offer high interest rate savings accounts. And that's one way that they offset that expense, the interest expense. Historically, community banks have said, well, look, there's there's only a, a couple grand in here in this account because it's a deposit account, or maybe it's five hundred bucks, right? right. Um, that you know that on its face <laughs> Some doesn't people look have five hundred dollars in their checking account, right? <laughs> um, right, but but I guess my my point would be if you just look at the balance, six hundred forty bucks. If you look at those balances, you go, they'll never make any money on this. This doesn't make any sense. But what they're I think they're doing is they're trying to get the primary relationship. And part of right, part of the the buyback or the payback on their side is debit inter- interchange, and part yeah. of it is you know just other things. I thought we would just spend a little bit of time talking about about how some of these other folks value the relationship. You you had used SoFi before, right? And SoFi, yeah. in my opinion, is primarily been a student loan lender, and they seem to be they seem to be making some strides into taking that relationship and now expanding it into the deposit relationship. You had mentioned that you had an experience maybe back when SoFi held your student debt, and I thought I'd give you just an opportunity to spend a minute or two around that, around how SoFi is trying to kind of backwards integrate to get those deposit accounts. Like millions of Americans, I have student loan debt and have refinanced it over the years into lower interest rates or into fixed payments or one payment. And I was using a student loan refinance servicer that just basically I could log in, see how much I paid, it auto-debited. I didn't really do much with it. It never really sought more of a relationship from me. Now, the institution that refinanced the loan did make a couple of reach outs, but it just wasn't a compelling value proposition for me. It wasn't, it didn't have any urgency in my life. Um, no, no need to change my how I structure my finances. SoFi came in and offered a student loan refinancing, but then offered $300 if you are approved for the refinancing. And why wouldn't I take $300 and refinance my loan while interest rates are so low? When I did that and was approved, SoFi said, well, great, here's your $300. You have to open a SoFi money account, but you can you can transfer it. We make it very easy to transfer the money afterwards. But once I opened that account, of course, I got the debit card. And SoFi then was, you know, then wanted me to fund the account and was going to give me $25 for that. They wanted me to send a direct deposit of a certain amount out to the account and was going to give me $75. And as I've been thinking about it, I actually have found that I like the SoFi account more than I like maybe a, an account that I'm using right now, my primary checking account, which is a traditional bank that I had to go into the branch um, right before college to open the account. And so, you know, my experience experience with SoFi and these things that they have done to make me <laughs> grow that account and, and have that account be become more of a primary account. They're working and I want it to work. I'm here for it. And it's just been funny to think, to reflect about um, how these fintechs valued my deposits, value my loan, value my relationship, see me as a customer and the services and the features that they offer to do that. Yeah. And I think about it as, you know, some of those offers you get in the mail, right? That says, you know, Chase is willing to pay you $200 to open your account. I think what's interesting about the way SoFi approached it is they didn't maybe didn't offer you, you know, $500 up front, but by picking up piece A, B, C, and D that they consider part of 
the primary account, right? We use direct deposit. By doing a direct deposit, you got this, you know, this benefit, right? By keeping money in the account, you got another benefit. Eventually, they still paid out X number of dollars. They just did it in pieces, which is really, you know, to me, kind of fascinating because I think most banks and I'll, I'll use, you know, Chase and Citi and the rest of them in general, if you don't bank with them at all today, you know, they know they're going to throw a couple more bucks at you to get you there. What's unique about the SoFi relationship is SoFi has got their foot in the door and what they're doing is they're offering more or less a cross sell, not necessarily Mm -hmm. a, you know, I don't have to go buy this customer. I just need to buy pieces of this customer. And eventually I'll be, you know, this will be a primary account for us, not wherever they banked before. Right. And the other thing too, and I think it speaks to these consumer focused fintechs is that I get the sense that for most banks, the consumer accounts are often the loss leaders and they don't really want to expand on a suite of services outside of maybe mortgage lending, maybe auto loans. And and that I feel like that fintechs have been picking up on this disinterest in the consumer financial relationship and saying, you know, we can, we can make money on the interchange. Um, We can make money on service, getting really good and using a lot of technology to service the lower dollar type of loans, like a student loan or a car loan. And, and an overdraft, right? I mean, as we spoke to before, I mean, there are, there are pieces where they're saying there's a value here in each of these items. They might not be big, big values, but eventually They'll get you for a loan or they'll get you for something else if they have, you know, if they have your trust. Yeah. And I also think the orientation is that they're not going to nickel and dime customers with the minimum account balances or charging for the different services that we've seen community banks and big banks do traditionally. The things that really turn customers or retail consumers off from their bank because, you know, we're, we're shifting the cost structure of um, what it means to offer a bank account and what should be free and what shouldn't be free. Uh, anything a community bank or banker can do about this? Well, that's the real question. Like, so what does this mean? So why should I care? I see a couple of reasons. Two two call reports into Vero's journey with a bank charter. Community banks will want to know about this and maybe see it as both a threat and maybe some inspiration. Community banks often don't like taxes and credit unions that are nonprofits. And I see some parallels between what cre- how credit unions orient themselves towards retail customers and Vero and Chime with lots of those smaller dollar checking and savings accounts and then paying the higher interest rates, maybe the focus on consumer lending products. Banks may want to look at the account features that Vero offers, like that early direct deposit to see if they could match it with existing products. If you've got the technology, if you've got that customer data, why don't you use it, right? Vero is showing that this, this data has value. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what products Vero rolls out now that they do have that nationwide bank charter and nationwide lending privileges. Same with Lending Club and SoFi. So the space is getting really interesting because consumers are increasingly having more options and more reasons to leave their primary or traditional community bank. I don't know if banks feel pressure from Vero to change, but I know that there's a lot of pressure overall for them to improve their digital offerings and channels. Community banks are already being held to the standards that online banks like Vero set for them, as well as big banks like JP Morgan, which can pour billions of dollars into technology every year. Meanwhile, a lot of community banks, as we saw during the darkest days of the pandemic, maybe don't offer online account opening or online loan applications. And that can be, it can really hold back a relationship or even stop a relationship from forming. So whether or not community banks miss out on their retail customers that move to Vero or move their account to SoFi, they should definitely be aware of the trends that these companies are encapsulating and capitalizing on. You had made an interesting point, I think, when we 
spoke earlier and you had you had mentioned that uh, several of your financial relationships you never had to step into a bank for. Maybe it was only the the traditional one that you yes. had to go step into the bank to open the account and whether that be a loan or a, or a deposit or account, right? It certainly seems like the world is migrating that way and you know especially with covid and you know branches not being easy to keep open opening that account it always used to be you know sit down with a new accounts person and you know across the desk and have them ask you some questions and you know walk you through it probably maybe only happens by appointment these days i think it's got a you know different mindset where people have to think about getting that account open where maybe you're not do you don't have the face to face most of my financial relationships or or bank accounts are actually at companies that are online or mostly online only and i don't think i have walked into a bank to open an account loan or checking in 15 years i would actually probably not do that <laughs> um i would probably choose a different bank over if it if it required that and i'm a bank reporter. So I love and breathe this stuff. And I'm a millennial, but millennials are old now. So um, that's another thing too, is uh, that this is, I think it's only going to become more digital. I don't, I don't see it going in the different direction, especially as far as retail consumers. And I think the pandemic and especially the um, paycheck protection program showed us that customers really do want online self-service options and they want them to be as fully functional as doing the loan application or the um, account opening in person. Uh, you know, is there anything else based on this conversation that you think community bankers should be thinking about? I am really interested in this question about fintechs and charters. And if that is something that your listeners are interested in, they should definitely check out my second quarter st- story in Bank Director Magazine. It comes out in April. Okay. And that's based on the, the charters, how fast they're opening, and just how the, the bank should be thinking about uh, what if one of these beasts gets a charter for lack of a um, Yeah. It's, it's about what it means to be a bank and who gets to be banks. So my articles and my writing is on bankdirector.com. We have a weekly newsletter. And then I have a Twitter account. If someone wants to follow me there, it's at khaslett. And um, my email is khaslett at bankdirector.com. Okay. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your opinion on this. And like I said, I do. we do appreciate the articles. It seems like you've always got something that's a little bit leading edge where we learn something. So it's great to kind of follow some of the material you put out. Well, I really appreciate that, Charlie. And I'm thrilled to talk about this with you. I, I think honestly, more people should be paying attention to it just as a, a good to know. I know it can be hard to sometimes stop looking at your own institution, but it's really, I think a really good time. I think the call report was a really good opening for banks to look at just what it means to be a fintech and how fintechs are approaching being a bank. If you're the CEO of a bank, even if you might not be of the age group or what have you, where this it was important back when you were opening up your accounts. Don't put your head in the sand, right? Because this is coming whether you want it to or not. So, I, you know, it's a, it's important that you educate yourself on, you know, if you call them the enemy or if you call them the competition, to your point of go out there and look at some of these tools, because number one, you can do it for free and it's easy to do. And number two, you can help kind of understand how you how that differs from, from what your offering is and whether or not you need somebody, you know, in your organization that spearheads this. Completely. Well, thank you again. Yeah, I, I certainly appreciate you joining us. And uh, once again, you know, thanks for all your time and thanks for your energy in this thing. Well, thank you so much, Charlie. I really appreciate it. Okay, take care. All right. Well, some great information there. When I think about the takeaway from this podcast, I guess the way I would think about it is this. I don't know if Viral or any of the other competitors has 650,000 accounts or 2 million. But let's just say for grins that they have a million accounts and all million accounts 
came from community banks, credit unions, or, or somewhere from within the United States. That's roughly 20,000 banks per state. And again, the math is terrible because obviously not every state is populated the same way. But if you think about it that way, how many of those customers were yours? And maybe still are yours, but maybe you don't have the primary relationship. So that's it for Bank Talk. Keep on learning. Thank you for listening to the Bank Talk podcast. To reach out to Kia Haslett on Twitter, her handle is at khaslett, or you can email her at khaslett, H-A-S-L-E-T-T, at bankdirector.com. And check out her next article in the April magazine, A Bank Director. Special thanks to Remedy Consulting for sponsoring the podcast. And if you have any other questions, go to banktalkpodcast.com and we will see you in the next episode.